Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Perhaps you do not know how much you need God to come as a woman in labor, a birthing spirit hovering over creation, holding within her the memory of you nursing at her breast. Or to surprise you, Perhaps you do not know how much you need God to surprise you in ordinary places, searching in the fields for sheep, uprooting his garden, keeping her bees, a a bird roosting in a tree. If you look closely as you walk, if you pay attention with your eye on the book and the world, the blessing will be as near as the dirt, as close as the air, a sprouting tree, a rushing fountain. And if you rage or fear, if tears are your bread, God is there in the middle of it, a steaming pot, a raging she-bear, a smoking kiln, or perhaps a fire, always fire. That, but, um, good afternoon, Awaken. Um, I'll just intro myself again. My name is Dallas, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, work here as the pastoral intern. Um, so if I haven't met you, say hi after. Otherwise, I'm glad to be here with you speaking this afternoon. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our journey through the book of Numbers this weekend. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last weekend or can't remember uh, what we were talking about, we were uh, in the story of Israel's complaints against God and, uh, and how he wasn't providing them with enough in the desert and Miriam's complaint against Moses for having an inappropriate marriage. But despite all of this, the end of the story was that, uh, uh, shows that all of God's people were united. They finally had a united effort and united family. Uh, they were the family that they were supposed to be. Their complaints had dissipated. Now they're focused. Now they're, they're ready. They're ready to keep going. Uh, they're nearly at the promised land where they will dwell with the Lord. And the story for this weekend picks up right after this unification. The Israelites have been in the wilderness for a while, um, and now they are very close to the promised land. They're finally, they can see where God has been leading them, where this promise has led them to. And you can imagine the anticipation around this moment. Like you've been in the desert for probably like almost a year, and now you're like, okay, we're going. I imagine it to be like in Lord of the Rings when Frodo and Sam are on the edge of Mordor, um, their journey to this place has been gruesome, but they're finally arrived. This analogy kind of falls apart when you think about like Mount Doom and volcanoes and all that stuff, but you get my point. Everything they've gone through has led to this. You would think there'd be joy and excitement at the prospect of finally having their new home. But before they can enter, they need to take some precautions. They need to scope out the land. They need to see what it's like. What are the people like? So we begin with one of the more popular passages in Numbers, the story of the 12 spies. We're going to skip certain chunks at the beginning of our passage today because it just is a list of names, and I'm not going to show you how horrible I am at pronouncing ancient Hebrew names. Um, But we're going to begin with Numbers chapter 13, 
verses 1 to 3, and then we'll skip to verses 17 to 20 after. Um, but it says this at the beginning. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of their ancestral tribes you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent from them, or from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them leading men among the Israelites. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Go up there into the Negeb, and go up into the hill country. Sorry, this is verse 17. Um, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad, and whether the towns that they live in are unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be bold and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the season of the first ripe grapes. This is their mission, to first send in 12 spies, one from every tribe, to see if the land is good. Oh, and make sure all the spies are leaders. They ought to be the chiefs, the captains, good, strong leaders. We want the wisest people going in because they will know best and will be able to lead our people in well. So off they go, and they spend 40 days in this land. And what do they find? A bountiful land flowing with milk and honey, referencing the promises of the fruitfulness of the land according to God and Moses. They find the most amazing fruit. It's so big that one man can't carry it, so they must put it on a pole between two men. What an amazing land. Who wouldn't want to live in such a place? And upon their return to the camp, they go directly to Moses and Aaron in the midst of the camp, and they share about their experience. They make sure they answer all the questions that they were supposed to answer with their time in the land. They report exactly what they saw. Look at this fruit, they say. It is so large and there's plenty to go around. You can imagine the murmuring and the crowd as they wait with anticipation. Everybody is waiting to hear about this land. Oh, but the other thing, uh, the land is heavily fortified and the people are huge too. Um, there's no way we can take this land. We will be defeated. Only Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies who were among them in the land, have faith. And they say in verse 30, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great size. There we saw the Nephilim, the Anakites come from the Nephilim, and to ourselves we seemed like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Don't worry, Caleb and Joshua say, we can certainly take this land. God is with us. Notice how they don't disregard the intimidating details of the land the other spies are sharing. They just don't think it will prevent them from taking it. God promised it, and he's shown them miracles in the desert. Why wouldn't he show up now? As Walter Brueggemann says, the enemy is helpless before the trusters of the promise. But in their fear, the other 10 tribe leaders start spreading their message to the Israelites. But now they manipulate the story. They don't share the good parts of their mission with the people. 
Where is the report regarding the lush landscape and the incredible fruit? They only share that there are giants in the land and oh, they devour people. This has suddenly become a very dramatic telling of the land because they are afraid that if the people hear the good news, they will have to go in. No, it's best we stay out. Trust me, we were in the land. Believe me, this is a hopeless mission. Suddenly those excited murmurs turned to whispers of doubt in the mouths and the ears of the Israelites. Imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite on the edge of the land of opportunity. You've been waiting for this moment, but now all you hear is that the land is filled with giants, too tough to fight, and you'll probably die trying to get in. The word of Caleb and Joshua is not sufficient against the concern of the other leaders. Think about the news today. If you look on Twitter, Google, Facebook, whatever your news source is, um, what catches your eye? Sad stories of tragedy, the bad news. This bad news easily propagates our minds and we can no longer believe anything that says otherwise. The good news becomes uh, surrounded with suspicion and we wonder if in fact that could be true. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but Netflix recently came out with a documentary series on 9-11. And in this series, they cover the actual day of the attacks on the Twin Towers, but more importantly, they focus on um, the aftermath and what the US government does in response. It's astonishing the messages that were used to convince the public that violent acts against certain figures in Afghanistan and many other countries were justified because of the awful things these people were planning to do. While some of those suspicions were confirmed to be true, there were also other instances where the US government straight up lied about it. Why? They were afraid. They wanted to crush any ounce of possible terrorism on the US. It's ironic because their actions resulted in people legitimately hating them even more. But the point remains, bad news creates, uh, the bad news about a situation creates doubt in our minds. Maybe we're not safe. Maybe we should retaliate, turn back, give up. And that's our question for today. Do we listen to the bad news or do we listen to the good news? Let's see what Israel decides to do when faced with this choice. Uh, we'll continue in Numbers 14, verses 1 to 4. So after this uh, report has been given to them, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will be plundered. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's choose a captain. Let's go back to Egypt. The Israelites listened to the altered bad news of the 10 spies. And to go even further, they questioned why God would even lead them here. Why wouldn't he just let us die in Egypt or even in the wilderness? So they decide they need a new leader, clearly one who's wiser, and have them lead us back to Egypt. They are done. The people of Israel have lost all hope of making it into the land. They refuse to go any further and want to return to Egypt, despite the fact that their very lives were also at risk back there and Pharaoh wanted to kill their children. 
Regardless, they are throwing accusations against God, and you can feel the tension rise as they cry out against Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron fall on their faces in anguish. Joshua and Caleb join them in grieving the response of the Israelites. For them, they had seen the land and had spread a positive message about it. They tell of its beauty and how it is exceedingly good. They believe that if God is pleased with them, as in if we don't complain again, that God will bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. The same words of Moses and the same as the initial report of the other ten spies. You can picture them pleading with the Israelites to not be afraid, but rather trust in the Lord. With God on their side, they can win this battle. But the crowd will not listen. Instead, shouts are heard in their midst that Caleb and Joshua are traitors. Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua fear what will happen if they ignore the promise and turn away from the Lord. But it's too late. The Israelites' imaginations are fraught with the idea of dying to these giants and anyone who says otherwise is against them. They go further still and decide that Caleb and Joshua, they need to be stoned. Kill them for spreading such a message. They want to destroy us. What they don't realize is that they have gone too far. The Lord looks at his people the way I imagine a parent looks at a disobedient child, though I'll admit with quite a bit more wrath. Maybe not. I won't speak into that. As I mentioned, not a parent. You can feel God's heart breaking as his people, his children, dismiss and ignore everything he's done for them thus far. They were once slaves, and he set them free. They were once being chased by Egyptians, but God put them to death. They were starving in the wilderness, and he fed them. How can you not see the goodness of your God? These are supposed to be his people, and he's supposed to be their God. This is the land he desires to bring them into, and they refuse. In his anger and his sadness, God appears to Moses, explaining his confusion. Why don't my people believe in me? Despite everything I have done among them, they still do not have faith. God had hope for his children, and they keep disobeying every time they get close. God's emotions are real, and we can understand his response. He's fed up. He's angry. His people, even after everything that's happened, still will not listen. So he turns to Moses. Moses, I'm done. Like a conversation between a mother and father, I can't bear this anymore. Let us just, you and I, go in. We can start over together. If they won't listen, then God will take his faithful servant Moses, and they'll begin anew. But Moses intercedes. Interestingly, he leads off with telling God that Egypt will think what Egypt will think of the Lord if he just destroys his own people. The Egyptians and such will know that you were here with your people, but they'll think that you couldn't actually fulfill your promise and give them the land that you said you would dwell in. Moses appeals to God's reputation amongst the nations. He doesn't begin by saying something about how God is a loving God and wouldn't do such a thing. He just says that it will negatively affect his reputation and make him look incapable and weak. But then, Moses turns to the most powerful words, the very words of God himself, in Numbers 14, verse 17 to 18. And now, therefore, let the power of the Lord be great in the way that you promised when you spoke, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Moses here is referring back to God's very own words right before he reestablished the covenant with Israel and gave the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 34, God proclaims this same message, declaring this about himself and says that he will drive out before Israel the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God has already promised to give them this land and named the people he would give them victory over. But sadly, Moses is the only one who remembers this amidst Israel. He pleads, remember your promise, Lord. These are your people, and this is the covenant you made with us. And you know what? Moses changes God's mind, which I might add is a wild claim. See, when I was growing up, you couldn't suggest something like that. I didn't think that God could change his mind because that would mean people had the ability to influence God and that God was capable of choosing something we disagreed with. But we can't dismiss the fact that this story shows that God wanted one thing, Moses asked for something else, and God changed his mind. How do we deal with that? How can this be possible? Or to push even further, how would our prayer lives change if we let this text teach us about prayer? We'd be praying every day for everything but still some of us have had experiences in life where we've pleaded with God that he would change some circumstance only to have it stay the same. Or we at, least, we at least know someone with that story. Something about Moses' relationship here with God leads us to believe that it is possible. But nevertheless, notice the details of God's decision here. And this is a key turning point in the narrative of numbers that will result in everything to come in the following weeks. It says this in verse 26 to 35. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation complain against me? I have heard the complaints of the Israelites, which they complain against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Your dead bodies shall fall in this very wilderness, and all of your number included in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have complained against me, not one of you shall come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become plunder, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have despised. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for every day a year, you shall bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do thus to all this wicked congregation gathered, toward, gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. God acknowledges that he can't just start over, but he doesn't say that he'll let everybody live. He actually responds exactly the way his own words repeated by Moses say he will act. He will be forgiving and that he will allow the Israelites to go into the land, but he will not let their faithlessness go unnoticed. 
the generation that he brought out of Egypt, the generation that complained against God, the generation that saw God perform miracles in the wilderness will not see the land. Only their children, the next generation, will see it. In fact, God gives them exactly what they themselves spoke about. They wanted to die in the wilderness, then your corpses shall fall in the wilderness. You didn't want your family suffering at the hands of the enemy, you will cause your families to suffer because of your own deeds. You want to return to Egypt? Go back into the desert for 40 years. Texts like these paint an interesting picture of the Lord. Last week we had a similar situation where God says some very cruel things regarding the people and the punishments seem unjust. We can't gloss over texts like these and pretend they don't exist. They speak about God's character. And to be responsible readers of the text, we must pay attention and ask questions. This story shows God in an emotional place. He's heartbroken over the betrayal of his people, and he longs to enter into the land with his people, but they refuse, and he's angry. This is only scratching the surface of what is to come in the following weeks, as you can imagine. My encouragement for us now is that we remain open and pay attention to God's character and numbers. Don't be afraid to feel confused upset or angry. But coming back to the specific story, why kill off this generation and not the next? Well, partly because of their disobedience, but also because this generation remembers Egypt. They remember the ideology of Egypt that included the storing up of food and slavery. Remember what we said in the beginning, God wants Israel to unlearn Egypt. It's clear that this generation cannot forget, so God will bring in the next generation, the one that has no recollection of Egypt and has no ties to some previous home or some previous way of life. They grew up in the wilderness, so their anticipation of the promised land is one of a future home. They understand where they are going and where they are sent. These are people looking for a place of being and belonging while they exist in between the unknown and the place they are, he the place they are headed. I myself do not know what it's like to not have a home or feel like I do. Uh, Tatiana and her family, however, do. She was born in Argentina, as I probably have mentioned before, but she moved to Calgary a couple years after she was born. Despite her not really remembering Argentina, there's always been a part of her that wonders where her home is. She doesn't remember Argentina, but she doesn't feel like Calgary is her home either. She's taught me a lot about immigration in the four years that we've been together. And when I asked her about it again this week, she said some things that are deeply profound and help me and I think us understand what it is like. She said that as immigrants, you have a sense of leaving everything you've ever known, everything you've ever loved, your favorite foods, your comfort spots, the language, and ways in which you know how to express yourself and have been raised to. Then ever so quickly you are pulled out of it and into this whole new world with new languages, new everything. Suddenly you have to figure it out all over again. There are a lot of moments when you want to retreat to what you know, the language you're familiar with, the places you know, and the things you know. You want to go inwards into yourself. Yet you have to figure out how to reorient yourself. And now you have two worlds living within your brain. She said the reason why immigrants leave their home country is because they want a better and typically safer life. This might be for themselves, but is also often for their children. 
They long for better opportunities. You've left a sense of safety and you come to a new place where you hope to be met with love and acceptance. And sometimes though, you're met with aggression or you're met with judgment, with moments of embarrassment and frustration when they don't understand your accent or your traditions. Or in some cases, your clothing or your religion, it results in this tension of, I don't belong anywhere. Sometimes you're met with cruelty. Every immigrant has their stories. On the next slide, you see a picture of the Haitian refugees from this past week when they had traveled all the way to the US, uh, to the US-Mexico border in search of a better life. Many of whom who had left their homeland after the 2010 earthquake, initially heading for South America, before heading to the US only to be met with giants on horses with whips. The migrants, the migrants were not permitted into the US and were returned to Haiti. Every immigrant has a story where they appear lesser than the majority. Our text today paints a picture of Israel and the Lord as this migratory nation, searching for a place of belonging. The generation from Egypt wants to return to what they know. They see what's on the horizon and they can't bear it. And God's words come true in the end of chapter 14 when the 10 spies die by a plague. And still others try to retract their refusal to enter the land and go up into the land without the presence of God. And they get slaughtered. But God and his few faithful, few faithful followers are ready to enter. They know the promise despite the apparent obstacles. They will go with the next generation, those who have nowhere to return to. God and his people are in search of their hopeful land and place of belonging. I, uh, I want to show you a video of a poem called The Migratory God. It's just a couple minutes. We'll watch this, and then I'll come back and I'll finish up. Migratory God, who uprooted Abraham and led him into a foreign land. Provide rest for your people, the stranger and alien, the refugee and wanderer, the one seeking sanctuary, settling in an unfamiliar place. Migratory God, who travels great distances to become human and live among us, dwelling in us. Help us to see that we are all restless, searching and seeking, finding that place of being and belonging, to lay our heads as you who had no place, except with your people. Migratory God, who has crossed borders and boundaries to be born a stranger, fleeing from country to country, feet moving for miles over desert and dry places, into the Jordan River, where you cross from one land to the other, in the waters of baptism, where you wash off ties to nation and citizen, 
so we might enter into a new kingdom and country. Migratory God, who accompanies us in our journey, remind us of where we've been, from where we've come, so we might not forget that we all traverse great distances to find the place that our hearts seek to settle. And we think of how it applies to ourselves. We could see ourselves as Israel, struggling in the wilderness, afraid of stepping out, not knowing where we belong. Or perhaps we might see ourselves as Moses, with the role of advocating for the most vulnerable people before God. One of the first things I learned about Boness when I started at Awaken was how economically diverse it is. People have pointed out to me the richest homes and the poorest homes. Stretches of townhouses mostly filled with Yazidi refugees fleeing their oppressive and violent countries. I love that Awaken is a parish that longs to serve the community of Bones. The common cupboard is a beautiful example of such a love. How else can we be loving and serving and welcoming people who maybe don't feel like they have a place to belong? Peter Block and Walter Brueggemann have a video where they are discussing what restoration means. And in this video, Peter Block asks a thought-provoking question. What are you doing to create the thing you're complaining about? Now, I'm not suggesting Awaken is complaining about various things, but rather offering this as a helpful, a helpful thought for reflection. Are we bad news people who see the headlines online and feel as though the world is pure evil? Or are we actively participating in the restoration of the world, of community? It doesn't merely happen in a church service like this with a sermon. Restoration requires the participation of the people when we go out into the community and join the conversation. The story adds to the reality that the wilderness is a place of constant insecurity. We never know what is going to happen and God's character doesn't appear to offer perfect comfort and safety. Sometimes God provides beyond the imaginations of the people, and sometimes his wrath is too much, and he vows to destroy some of his own. Yes, God is hard to deal with in this story. There are many people, myself included, who have tried to excuse God's behavior, but in reality, we can't do it. I don't think we need to, either. I wish I could give you a clean answer as to why God is justified in his actions, but I think that would be doing a disservice to you and to the text. The Israelites were stuck with this God, and he's our God too. God isn't afraid of how he looks in this story. It's hard for us to think this way, but God is also stuck in the wilderness with the Israelites. He's also eager to get into the land where the Israelites will be his people, and he will be their God. For the ancient Israelites, God is in this distinct place, and together they want to move into the land. But this God 
is also the God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who, although he was equal with God, gave up all glory and took the place of a slave. Joshua, in, in our story, was originally named Hosea. But before he goes spying in the promised land, and I didn't read this, God changes his name to Joshua. Joshua means salvation or liberator. And this is profound because Joshua is the one who ends up leading Israel into the promised land after Moses dies. And what's even crazier, Joshua and Jesus share the same name, meaning Jesus is liberator. Right after Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan and before he begins his ministry, Jesus is identified as the beloved child of God and is sent in the wilderness for guess what, 40 days. Jesus, now in the place of Israel, takes up their very own suffering. Jesus is both liberator and Emmanuel, God with us in the wilderness. Jesus came to bring not the bad news, but the good news, the best news, news that was radically inclusive, drastically anti-empirical, and massively liberating, the kingdom news. We, like Jesus, are supposed to be good news people. Is there bad news out there? Yep. And like Caleb and Joshua, I don't think we are supposed to ignore it. But we don't let it run our lives and override our faith either. The hope of Jesus breathes life into those places of bad news. Let us awake and be eager to listen to and spread good news. Good news that is more than just a declaration, but is a radical reorientation of the world. Good news that God is the God of those in the wilderness, those who have no home. He is there among them as they traverse foreign lands in search of belonging. And he wants to bring all his people into a home with him. Let's pray. You are Emmanuel, God with us. God of those who have homes and God of those who have none. Help us be a people who participate in the restoration of this world, moving society from places of division and anger into places of reconciliation, love, and openness. Let us sing songs of praise for the good news that you brought to your people, news that welcomes all people into your house, into your presence. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.